chapter 25, so let me invite you to follow along with me as I read and and, uh, present the passage to you. 1 Samuel 25. In the larger context, we see that unlike Saul, David is a reasonable person. That is, a person who can be reasoned with. Saul runs on pure emotion and paranoia and his pursuit of power. But David is a man who runs on principle. Saul has increased his personal vengeance and passion for destroying someone who he thinks has crossed him, someone who he thinks is out to get him. David is not that kind of man at all. Power is not going to corrupt David like it does Saul, at least to the degree that it does to Saul. David will will not take the kingdom by force, even though Saul thinks he will, even though David has an opportunity to do so. We saw that last time in chapter 24 where uh, Saul really comes into a place of vulnerability inside of a cave with his guard down and, and David has the opportunity to take the kingdom away from him. Something that God had already promised to him, by the way, and yet he chooses not to. And the question that we have to ask now uh, leading into this next chapter is, can David see that he must not take out vengeance on Nabal when, Dave, when Nabal wrongs David. Because David has been the recipient of evil from Saul, and he, he responded well. He responded to evil with good. Now the question is, can he translate that into this evil act that's done to him by Nabal? And, of course, if you know the story, you know the answer to that. But, but um, if not, we'll, uh, we'll go through it together. All right? Let me read uh, the first 22 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 25. This is the Word of God. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. That David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? 
So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said this to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with, him, with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belongs to him. Here we see that God saves us from the folly of our sin that puts us on a path towards spiritual destruction. God lovingly rescues us, delivers us from the folly of our own sin that puts us on a path towards spiritual destruction. There are two main points, and you see them there in the theme. The first is that believers often make choices that put them on a path towards spiritual destruction. And then the second main point that we'll see beginning in verse 23 is that God providentially protects His people from self destruction. So first, believers often make choices that put them on a path towards spiritual destruction in verses 1 through 22. Here we have an introduction. Uh, Before we get to introducing Nabal, we see that Samuel the prophet dies in verse 1. And so between David's merciful sparing of Saul's life and this episode with Nabal, and Abigail, we have this brief note that Samuel the prophet dies. And it could be important to the trajectory of the story and that it shows that Saul's kingdom is coming to an end. It's about to terminate. And David's kingdom is about to start. And you remember Saul was the one that anointed... uh, Samuel was the one who anointed Saul. But I don't think that's the point to show us the trajectory of of the story, the transition between kingdoms, I think it might show us that, the, that this really, this man, Samuel, is the last one who can bring these two men together, that can reconcile them. And now he's dead. So David's been running from Saul. He, he's been being chased by Saul. He's had narrow misses, but has not been destroyed by Saul. And now the one man who potentially could bring them back together and reconcile is dead. And we would expect David to go and mourn for Samuel, but David is in a desperate situation, remember? He's on the run from Saul, and he can't just show his face 
at, at a morning uh, festivities, right? He can't show his face um, in an assembly because Saul's going to have people who are watching out for him. And so he continues to stay in hiding the wilderness of Paran, says there in verse 1. In verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to this man, Nabal. At first, if you read just verse 2, it sounds like he's a pretty admirable man. I mean, if you read the first part of verse 3 as well, he's, he's rich. He's, he has several sheep and goats. And, and he has this wife who is just wonderful. She's intelligent and beautiful. So he's a man who employs a lot of people. He has a lot of influence. But notice the end of verse 3. While Abigail is intelligent and beautiful, the end of the verse says, but the man, Nabal, was harsh and evil in his dealings. So in contrast to his wife, he is mean and ugly in the way that he deals with people. And the ugliness of his character is seen in his mistreatment of David's men in verses 4 through 11. David's men come with this message of peace. Notice in verse 6 alone. This is what David says to save them. Have a long life. Peace be to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. Peace, peace, peace. See, we're not coming to, to start a fight. We're not coming to take over anything. We're not coming to look for a handout. Primarily, we want, to rec- we want you to recognize that, that we come in peace. And so, um, these men of David, David's servants, remind Nabal about a time recently when Nabal had brought his sheep, his livestock, to a place where they were grazing in Carmel. In verse 7, you see that? And, and in case you think, well, these men, these servants of David, probably provoked... So they probably did something against Nabal. That's why he doesn't like them. But notice in verse 15, when, when these are Nabal's servants talking now to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and they say to her, yet the men, David's men, were very good to us and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them. In other words, they didn't steal any of our livestock, right? And while we were in the fields. And then verse 16, Notice, they were a wall to us, both day and night, all the time. We were with them and tending the sheep. So not only did they, were they our friends and they didn't take anything from us, but they also served as a barrier to us. They were our friends. They, they actually set up um, kind of a perimeter for us to protect us from other bandits or dangerous animals, potentially. And so we'd expect a man like Nabal, who benefited from their services, to respond with, kindness and mercy but instead in verses 9 through 12 he responds to their good with evil doesn't he instead of reciprocating care and concern for david and his men he responds with evil in verses uh, 9 through 12 here nabal shows no respect at all for for david Notice what he says in verse 10. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Doesn't that sound like Saul in chapter 22? You know, who is the son of Jesse that's, that's chasing after me, that's wanting to take my throne? We need, to, we need to kill him. And that's the way Nabal talks of David, this son of Jesse. And notice how he, he disparages David at the end of verse 10. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Do you see what he's saying about, the, about David? This guy is... This guy is, is breaking away from his master. He's like a runaway slave. He will not 
submit himself to his master. What kind of guy is this? I mean, this guy has no, um, he has no integrity. And so I don't feel bad about not reciprocating care for him and, and you men. David or Nabal responds. Uh, he responds to the good that he receives with evil. So he overcomes good with his evil, and so David responds. And here we'd expect David to do what David does uh, with Saul. That when David is mistreated, he responds with kindness, goodness, right? But instead, here David makes this rash vow and he responds to Nabal's evil with more evil. That if you're going to treat me that way, if you are going to disrespect me, then you're a dead man. And not only you, but all of your men. I'm going to kill them all. Here in verses 13 to 22, um, David responds with anger and I would say sinful anger in, in making this sinful vow to kill Nabal, Nabal and his men. And isn't that what our flesh often likes to do? That, that we, we, when we are mistreated, we want to take out retribution for ourselves. We want to take out vengeance upon the person who made us feel that way, mistreated us. We want them to feel what we feel. And that's, what David, that's where David's at, except for a too much greater degree than we might imagine. And he wants to kill Nabal. And so in verse 13, David's ready to destroy Nabal. Um, he, notice in, in verse 6, it was peace, peace, peace. Notice what the word, the repeated word is in verse 13. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man gird on his sword. And David also gird on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David. So it was peace, but now, you know, you responded with fighting words. And so now the sword's coming. Now, why is this such a big deal to David? I mean, we might think, well, you, you sent your men to ask them for help. And, and if we were in Nabal's sandals, right, if we were rich and someone came to our door asking for a handout, that's what it looks like David's doing. You know, can you, can you help a guy out? And with our American eyes, we don't necessarily see anything wrong with what Nabal did or with what David did. But, but notice who does think that this is wrong. In verse 14, Nabal's men recognized that what Nabal did to David was wrong. One of the young men, that's Nabal's men, went to Abigail and said, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. And then in verse 17, it says at the end of the verse, And he, Nabal, is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So Nabal, what he did was sinful to David's men in responding the way that he did. When they came and asked for help because of all the care that they had shown to him and his livestock, Nabal should have given it to him, but instead he scorned them and he's a worthless man. And, and if we think about it in the terms of the larger context of Scripture, we should recognize that what Nabal is doing is much like what the Edomites did to, the, to Israel in the wilderness. Remember, Israel's wandering through the wilderness and the descendants of Esau are there and they have an opportunity to help out Israel and to give them a place to stay, to, to allow them to pass through when they're being chased by their enemies. And what do they do instead? They, they condemn Israel. 
and God condemns Edom for, for not allowing Israel to be helped in that situation. And so what, a, what Nabal is doing is wrong. And so now when we think about it in that way, Nabal was acting in sin. So is it right now for David to be justified in how he responds to them? That is, wanting to see Nabal receive the death penalty and all of his men. Well, the message about David's revenge is passed on to Abigail in verses 14 through 20. They explain the situation and notice we saw her quick response in verses 18 through 20. She hurries and grabs all these things and she's going to meet David at the road, kind of at the pass. So before he gets to Nabal, she's going to talk to him. And and notice David's rash vow in verses 21 and 22. Perhaps... um, you didn't see this before, but, but what this is here is David... Now, this is a flashback. Okay, We're, we're kind of taking the story chronologically up until this point in verse 22, and now it, we kind of get a picture into what David was thinking and wanting to carry out this massacre. And here's what he was thinking in verse 21. He says, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness. In other words, I wish I wouldn't have showed any care to this man and his livestock because it was of no value. And he's responded to my good. Look at the end of the verse. He's returned me evil for good. And so now, here's his prayer, his, his promise before God in verse 22. May God do so to the enemies of David and much more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belongs to him. Now, if you have a King James Version, you've got a little bit of a PG-13 rated version there in verse 22. talks about the male and... Um, that's one of the other reasons I do like the New American Standard. It talks about males in this passage the way that we talk about males. We don't speak in terms of, of how the King James puts it there. Um, but the point is that, that uh, David and his men are going to carry out judgment for themselves. They're going to take out vengeance on Nabal and his men. And, and, and in verse 22, this is a covenant that he's making before God. He's saying, God, let you do to me. Let you take my life. You take my life if I don't kill every single one of these men. Every single one. And so he's ready to destroy Nabal. And I would suggest to you, David is ready to to destroy himself in the process. This is a path that David is on towards self destruction because now he's starting to compromise his principles for the sake of his own personal revenge. And as we've seen before, he's done well when it came to Saul, but now when it comes to this man who's spited him, he's ready to carry out vengeance for himself, not wait on the Lord, not wait for God to bring out judgment, but to carry it out himself. And so David puts himself in a place that's going to send him on a path towards spiritual destruction. But the good news of this passage and the good news of our God as He works with us is that when we start down a path as believers of self-destruction, God here, here's the second point, God providentially protects His people from self-destruction. God here providentially protects his people from self-destruction. Verses 23 through 44. So David, Nabal, wants to respond with 
uh, to the good that he's received with evil. David wants to respond to the evil that he's received with more evil. And God's saying, no. We have this woman here who's willing to take your evil and to respond to your evil with good and, and to protect you from yourself. In fact, that was God protecting David from himself. And this is the great news about our God is He lovingly, providentially steps in and protects us from our own self-destruction. First, God protects David by... Uh, this is already up there. God protects David through a thoughtful woman. Verses 23 through 31. Let me read these verses. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please, let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man. In other words, you, David, don't pay attention to my husband, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the, fighting, uh, the battles of the Lord. Here she's talking about David, the, the good things that he's doing. And evil will not be found in you all of your days. Verse 29. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So here, Abigail cuts David off in the past. She sends some, some of her own servants ahead of her with a bunch of gifts. And so David would have recognized that she was coming in peace. She comes out from between the mountain, apparently, and, and she kneels down with her face to the ground and takes blame for her husband's foolishness. Put the blame on me. Don't put it on my husband. He's, he's out of his mind. You know, he's foolish. He's not acting properly. And so basically what she's saying here in verse 24 is if you're going to kill someone, kill me. She acknowledges that Nabal is foolish in verse 25, and then she pleads with David for mercy. And she pleads with him on the basis of a couple things. First, she appeals to David on the basis of his integrity in verse 26. She says, Now therefore, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. So yes, they have mistreated you, but, but you don't want your name to be, uh, to be smeared. You don't want... To, to go down that pathway. You don't want to go down the same path of, of his foolishness. And, and then in verses 27 through 29, she appeals to God's rules. She's saying, listen, God will be the judge over Nabal, right? Let, let God do that. Verse 28 says, uh, you know, um, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. In other words, he's going to protect you. You don't need to follow through on this. 
Let God carry out judgment on Nabal. Let God be God. Leave room for His wrath. Right? Romans 12.19 And then in verses 30 and 31, Abigail appeals to David on the basis of his own self-interest. In verses 30 and 31, she, he said, she, says, um, she says, Listen, I don't want you to have a troubled heart when you become king. That's what she says in 31. Wouldn't this be terrible if you came through our city, did this, you know, performed this great massacre, killed all these innocent people, one guilty, but all these other innocent people, just so that you could carry out vengeance? How is that going to look for you when people, people look to you as king? And whenever you don't get your way, you just go and wipe people out. And so she appeals to him on the basis of his own self-interest. Protect your own conscience here, David. This will trouble you for years to come. And so don't do it. God protects David through a thoughtful woman. And then He protects David by giving him a softened heart in verses 32 and 35. You, you can just see the rage. I mean, if you're picturing the story, you can just see the rage that David with drawn sword is riding on his, his horse or donkey and, and riding into the city ready to to do battle and, and bloodshed. He's, he's already given this vow of slaughter. Let the Lord do to me evil. Let Him kill me if I don't follow through on this promise that I have made. But notice that David acknowledges after she kind of calms him down, God softens his heart and he responds in verses 32-34. to Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. And so David received from her hand what she had brought and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Have you been there? Have you been on the verge of doing something spiritually disastrous? And then God came along and used maybe a, a godly friend to step in at just the right time. Someone who knew you and knew the right words to say. And when you saw that it was God who was at work, you instantly knew that He was protecting you from your own self-destruction. That's David. He knows that God's at work through Abigail. And he goes from being a man with a drawn sword to a sword that's sheathed now. And he's calm and he says, I'm not going to follow through on what I had planned. Now this is an amazing assertion here in verse 35. Because he had already said in, in verse 22, May God do so to me if I don't follow through on this massacre. I'm planning to go through on this with God as my witness. So he makes this vow, but here in verse 35 he says, I'm not going to do it. I've listened to you. I've, I'm not going to do it. And so what David is doing here is he's going back on a sinful vow. So let me just encourage you here with one important principle that we can learn from this verse. That the only thing worse than making a sinful, rash vow is following through on it. 
Right? Do you remember Jephthah? He said, the next thing that comes through that door, I'm going to kill and sacrifice it to God. Good vow or bad vow? Good vow or evil vow? I was evil. Because he's basically playing the lottery, effectively, saying, even if it's a person, he probably didn't think that far, but, but he basically made a, a foolish, rash vow. And the only thing worse than making that vow was following through on it. To kill his own daughter. Now we, we might think, well, wait a second. God said it's better to, not to make a vow than to make one and not keep it. But do but you know what's worse than making a vow and not keeping it? It's making a vow like Jephthah did, a sinful vow, and then following through with it. For example, if I said, you know, I will never pay another dime to the U.S. government. Or, I will kill my neighbor for their barking dog that's been keeping me up all night. Okay, it's one thing for me to make that vow, but it would be even worse for me to follow through on it. And what David's done is he made a foolish, sinful vow. And God hates when we don't follow through on vows, but He hates even more when we make a sinful vow and we follow through on it. And so he says to her, go in peace. Your house is safe from my attack. And verses 36 to 38, God takes out vengeance on Nabal. Now, this is completely unexpected. David's not saying, you know, if I do this, then maybe God will do this. No, he's recognizing, well, God may do this. He may kill Nabal in his own timing, but God here mercifully comes along and, and protects Nabal from this, this worthless man. Verse 36, the Nabal came to date. Uh, Abigail, excuse me, came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like a feast of a king and Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. And so she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Now, just because we make the right choice when God confronts us with our sin and keeps us from our own self-destruction doesn't mean that God's always going to rescue us in a dynamic way like He does here. In other words, this is not a guaranteed promise. This happens to be what God does in this case. But it does serve for us, uh, it shows for us the kind of God that we serve. right? It shows the kind of God that is lovingly merciful despite our intentions of evil. Nabal here in verse 36 gets drunk and then Abigail in the morning after he's a little bit more sober spills the beans and when he hears this news apparently he has a stroke. His heart dies. It kind of hardens within him and he becomes a stone. He probably becomes completely paralyzed. That's the idea of him becoming a stone. He just can't move. And then 10 days later he dies. In verses 39 through 44 David marries Abigail in Ahinoam. Verse 39 says, When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey and her five maidens who attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also had taken a Hinnom of Jezreel 
and they both became his wives. Now Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galim. So David, in verse 39, praises the Lord on behalf of, uh, of himself and his men for protecting them and, and protecting him, David specifically from spiritual disaster. But David praises the Lord also because of this wife that he's going to have. In verses 39 through 42, he, he marries Abigail. Pretty romantic uh, proposal, isn't it, ladies? That he sends a servant and says, hey, he wants to marry you. Come and, come and marry him. Um, in, in marrying Abigail, he probably gains Nabal, Nabal's huge estate and great favor with his own tribe. Um, and then he marries Ahinoam in verse 43. We might look at these two additional marriage, marriages in, in addition to the, the one to Michael, Saul's daughter. We might look at that and say, well, you know, maybe God is okay with polygamy. But, but we need to recognize that the Scriptures often tell true events without commentary. Because God has already spoken in other places. We already know that, that God has made a man to, to be married to a wife for one lifetime. That they're supposed to be remain, remain married for a lifetime. And that they're only to be married to one person at a time, right? And yet, um, and, and so in this case, we see that David takes on a new wife and another one. And we might... Um, be confused by this, but the wise reader will interpret David's polygamy as sin. In other words, the Bible never condones polygamy. The pattern is Genesis 2.24, one man for one wife for one lifetime. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wives, no, to, to his wife, and the two, not the three or four, shall become one flesh, but the two shall become one flesh. Deuteronomy 17.17 17 specifically speaks about this with regard to kings. David would have known this passage. Kings shall not multiply wives upon themselves or else his heart will turn away. The king will turn his heart away if he has too many wives. And David's son would be a great example of that, right? Solomon, a man who gained all these wives and yet in the end of his life, his heart turned away from God, turned towards those idols. Exactly why God didn't want them to marry more than one. And verse 44 Saul strangely gives his daughter away, the one that's already married to David, to another man. And this is probably a power play on the part of Saul. He's saying, listen, you don't have any power in my household, David. You have no right to take over this throne. And so I'm actually giving your wife away to another man. And um, so remember, in the ancient Near East and really in much of World, the world's history, royal marriages were more about political power than anything else. And so, um, while we have kind of a, a black mark on the end of this passage, what we see overall is that God lovingly protects His people from their own potential self-destruction. So let me give you four principles to consider this evening. Number one, mature wisdom sees the values of God across varying circumstances. We could call this transfer wisdom, as one commentator puts it. Mature wisdom sees the values of God across varying circumstances. Let me explain what I'm talking about. David had an opportunity in the previous chapter to kill Saul. Very easy. He comes in. He's vulnerable. David could have killed him very easily and taken the throne. But he recognized that the Lord was the one who was going to take out vengeance on Saul. God was going to be the one who determined who was innocent and who was guilty. So he wasn't going to do it. It's going to be the same thing in next, the next chapter. Remember, 
in the next chapter, Saul is asleep in his tent and the spear is next to his head, kind of a protection for Saul. And, and David's right there and he has the opportunity to just take that spear and put an end to this chase. And yet, here in chapter 25, David doesn't transfer the wisdom that he already had learned in a situation with the Lord's anointed. He doesn't transfer it to this man, Nabal. Instead, he's ready to kill him. He's ready to take out vengeance on him. Now, is Nabal a bad man? Yes. Did Nabal deserve to die? Yes. But was it David's place to murder him for mistreating him? Of course, the answer is no. Vengeance needed to be taken out on Nabal, but not by David. That's God's prerogative. That's God's responsibility. David saw that very clearly with Saul, but he didn't see it with Nabal. And this reminds me of the disciples. They failed at transferring wisdom too. That they were there for the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And when Jesus quizzed them on that, do you remember what happened there? How many baskets were left? Twelve? Okay. How many baskets were there? Seven? Okay, good. You remember all that. You remember all the facts. That's great. Then why are you wondering where we're going to get bread while we're out here in a boat? I'm here with you. But, but Jesus, we only have one loaf. How are we going to feed everybody? In other words, one piece of flatbread for all of us. How are we going to get anything to eat? Do you remember the 5,000? Yes, we do. Do you remember the 4,000? Yes, we do. You've got to transfer it, guys. Transfer it over. Do you see what I've done there? I am the giver of life. I can provide you the bread that you need. Sometimes we are very clear on what is right in one situation, but when we move it into a different situation, we don't see with clarity what we're supposed to do. We don't transfer, God has protected me in this situation, God's responsibility is to take out the vengeance in that situation, but here, you know, I've got to do it myself. And ultimately, it comes down to wisdom and trusting God. So, mature wisdom sees that and, and transfers across all circumstances. Number two, our greatest enemy is no match for God. God can destroy our enemies with such ease. Remember what happened with David? Here in verse 13, he takes how many men? Look in your text, verse 13. 400 men with him. David's got this whole army. He's ready to take out Nabal and his men. And yet, what does God do? God doesn't need all that. He simply, with a word, gives him a stroke, whatever it is, paralysis, and he wipes him out with hardly a thought. Ten days later, he's gone. God can destroy our enemies for us. We don't have to, to fret about what's going to happen. God can take care of them, and we need to, to trust him in that. Number three. Oh, that was two. Our greatest enemy is no match for God. Number three, God providentially restrains His people from the disaster of their own sin. This is the main point of the text. Do you realize if, if you and I could destroy ourselves spiritually, we would do it. If we could do it, if we could do it, we would do it. But, but here's the great news and the confidence that we have in our great God that our salvation does not depend upon us. God will not allow us to destroy ourselves spiritually, will He? Both Abigail and David acknowledged that God was behind the, the prevention of vengeance. Notice verse 26 again. It says, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you. Apparently what she's seeing is 
David's not as, as upset as he was before. The, the sword has been put away. She sees that God now has restrained you. Then look at verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Verse 33. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day. So you've kept me. That is, you, you've been the instrument that God's used to keep me. And then verse 34. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel live, who has restrained me? And then skip down to verse 39. David says there, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant. So, God's restrained me. God has kept me, verse 33. God has restrained me, verse 34. God has kept me. He's, he's kept me back from destroying myself and, and Nabal. And isn't our God amazing in this way? Has God ever done that for you? Have you had the experience that, that your mind was set on pursuing a certain sin? Then God came along and lovingly restrained you from the path of destruction that you had set yourself upon. I can tell you that I can think of specific sins that I enjoyed to my own shame. And specific times when God was reminding me of the damage that it would cause. And I went on into that sin anyway. And yet God providentially protected me from my own spiritual self-destruction. I didn't see all the dangers ahead. Right? The wise sees the danger and, and goes, turns away from it. But, but in my foolishness, I continued on in my sin, not knowing how much danger I was bringing upon myself. And yet, God came along and, and lovingly protected me from my own spiritual self-destruction. It wasn't anything magical. There was no sign in the sky. You know, the power didn't go out or anything like that. It was just the regular preaching under which I sat and regular reminders from faithful believers who loved me and who prayed for me. And for you, God may have rescued you from your own sin in another way. Sometimes He does it by allowing your hidden sin to be exposed. A friend of mine was on staff at at a Baptist church in our area and he told me about a time when a Christian man and woman were committing adultery. And it progressed to the point, or digressed, to the point where they were actually caught in the act of adultery inside the church building. Obviously, it had to be addressed publicly. And the adulterous man was devastated that he had been caught. But the pastor got up in front of the church and said, this couple was not caught. They were rescued. Because if God had allowed them to go on unnoticed, unchecked, they both would have destroyed themselves spiritually. But here God is catching them in in an attempt to rescue them from themselves. Now, certainly their sins had serious consequences. They couldn't just go, okay, you know, life goes back on as normal. But, But if they were thinking rightly and biblically, they would see that God in that case was doing what He did here for David and that He lovingly rescued them from themselves and gave them one more opportunity to repent. And He did so in this case by doing something that was a little bit painful for both of them, which was to expose their sin to the whole congregation so that they could see how serious their sin really was. Now, God may not restrain you from your sin through a catastrophic event. Instead, God may restrain you in a simpler way like He did with me. Regular appeals from the Scripture. 
Or it could be through loving believers who just are, are constantly caring about you and holding you accountable and, and pointing out some of your failures in a loving way. could be through circumstances. And then another thought with regard to this is that the guarantee of God's rescue should not lead us to inaction. Okay, so if we take from this, well, God's going to rescue me from my own spiritual self-destruction, so I can just resort to this idea of fatalism. And what I can tell you on the authority of Scripture is that it is true that God will rescue believers from their own self-destruction. You can count on it. However, what I would suggest to you is if that your attitude is fatalism, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to sit here and allow God to, to do something, I'm not going to respond when my sin is, is approached, then I, can, uh, I, I, I would warn you about your condition before God, that you are probably not a Christian if your attitude is one of fatalism. Fatalism is the idea that since God will rescue me, I can just sit back and enjoy my sin. And so instead, what we need to do is realize when, when our sin is exposed, when we are given another opportunity to repent, that is our, 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 uh, our chance to stand up and, and, uh, and side with God. We can't sit around and wait for God to zap us or whap us upside the head when we regularly engage in sin. We need to respond when we hear the Spirit call. Finally, our response to God when He restrains us from our sin is an indicator of who we are. How we respond to sin indicates who we are in Christ. How is it that we respond when God stops us on the road towards foolishness? That's the real question. Do you just ride right on through, carry on with the sinful purposes anyway? Or do we recognize the merciful hand of God who's working to protect us, giving us one more opportunity to repent? To protect us from our own great enemy, which is our sinful flesh. The way that you respond, the way that I respond in those times reveals the character of who we are. And so if you're regularly running through spiritual roadblocks that God is setting up, then you should be concerned about your soul and about your eternity. That's what Saul did, right? He had several opportunities to see his foolishness. Jonathan comes to him and says, Dad, stop trying to kill David. He hasn't done anything. He's, he's a man of integrity. His own men, we're not going to kill the priests of Nob. They haven't done anything. And, and David even protects him by not killing him in the cave. And, and what Saul is doing is just bulldozing right over the roadblocks that God's setting up to protect him from himself, which reveals who he is, right? It reveals that he's an unbeliever. And if that's how you respond when God points out your sin, you can expect to receive the destruction that you are pursuing, that your sin is leading toward. But if instead you are responding to these roadblocks with contrition and holiness like David does, then you should have assurance that God is producing fruit in you. So don't be complacent with your sin. But, but look at the situation when God sets up those times, even if it is a, a, an exposing of your sin, say, this is God lovingly protecting me from myself, my own self-destruction. If you could turn away from God spiritually, you would. But our God lovingly protects us from our own self-destruction spiritually. And aren't you thankful that He does? Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, 
Occupy our lowly hearts, own them all, and reign supreme, and conquer every rebel power. And don't let any vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased us, and so make us yours forevermore. That is our prayer this evening, Father. We have seen you guard us from ourselves, and so we're thankful for that. And we want to to continue to have eyes that see the dangers that are ahead like a wise person. Lord, save us, rescue us from our own foolishness and defiance and our resolve to go on in our sin unchecked. May we be willing to to accept the consequences of our sin and, and at the same time be repentant of them like David was in Psalm 51. Lord, we're thankful that that You lovingly, providentially rescue us when we are in times of trouble. And Lord, we pray that You would continue to do that, that for us all the way till the end. We are Your sheep and You are our shepherd. And we trust in You. Thank You for Jesus Christ and the way that He has paved for us so that we can have this relationship with You. And that there will come a time when there will be no more sin There will be no more sinful hearts within us when we reach the next life. So, Lord, we pray that you would send our Savior quickly. We pray in his name. Amen.